Dear Heavenly Father, thank you very much for bringing us here all together to GYC to um, study your word and your will for us and your guidance in our lives and to learn a little bit more about uh, your second book uh, of nature. In Jesus' name, amen. A lot of people think that the science is inherently anti-religious, that the, that the two don't overlap, that uh, religion is one avenue to approach truth and science is a completely separate avenue to approach truth, and that the two do not intermix or talk to each other and they're, they're completely separate enterprises. And uh, it's my position anyway that they don't have to be separate. They can be separate, but I think it's better if they're not, that, they, that if you can overlap your science and your religion, you have better uh, of both fields, that you have a better religion and, you, and your sciences actually could be better. Darwin uh, published a book that started everything in motion as far as uh, science becoming more uh, secular because before Darwin became popular, Scientists, the best scientists in the world, were largely very religious in their efforts to explore the mind of God. Uh, but in, after Darwin, scientists started becoming more and more secular uh, and uh, independent of God or any sort of uh, consideration of God in their uh, studies. And the, the title of the book is very interesting, what Darwin wrote. He said, On the Origins of the Species by Means of Natural Selection, so that's the mechanism, or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life, published in 1859. And the races he's talking about here are human races. So he's, it was kind of uh, uh, anti, uh, what would I say, racist. It was a racist mentality in, in his day and age, and his book reflects that. So what is Darwinian evolution? What is it? actually based on. It's actually based on a fairly simple mechanism known as random mutations, uh, which are small or large, apparently random non-directed genetic changes in DNA, and natural selection, which is a non-random force, a real brutal force of nature that in each generation mindlessly selects the strongest to preferentially survive and reproduce the next generation. And it's otherwise known as survival of the fittest. And it's also a very real force. It happens. There is natural selection. It works. It's just brutal and mindless is the, uh, the only uh, problem with this force. So what are the implications of Darwinian-style evolution? Well, let's start with uh, the implications of those who favor um, uh, atheism, the atheistic view of Darwinian evolution. This is Richard Dawkins. He's a very famous, uh, currently living uh, zoologist and professor of public understanding of science at Oxford. He's uh, very well funded. He has a lot of money at his disposal and he's been very active. He writes, although atheism might have been logically tenable before Darwin, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. So before Darwin came along, he really couldn't intellectually uh, be fulfilled as an atheist because there is so much evidence for God. But then when Starwin came along, they kind of removed the need for God, and so now you could be a happy atheist as far as intellectually uh, it goes. Uh, and it's interesting that, that Dawkins started out as a Christian, but then he became, he, he actively searched for something to support uh, an ability not to believe in God because he had such a horrible view of God. And um, we'll get into that in a minute. Right here is a little video of it. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most 
most unpleasant character in all fiction. <coughs> Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So, I mean, if that was your view of God, would you look for atheism too? Uh, I would. You know, if you really thought that God was all those horrible things, uh, I, I wouldn't like him either. Uh, so it all depends on your view of God, and, and if that was your view, that's how you were brought up and taught that this is what God is really like. And the Old Testament view is more of a reflection of God than it is of human degradation. Uh, then you, you'd probably be pretty uh, peeved as well. So, um, you know, at least you understand Dawkins' background a little bit, why he's so adamant and so uh, very uh, hateful against Christian ideas. Um, William Praveen, he's also a famous professor of biological science at Cornell University. He writes, naturalistic evolution has clear consequences that Charles Darwin understood perfectly well. No gods worth having exist. No life after death exists. No ultimate foundation for ethics exists. No ultimate meaning in life exists. And free human free will is also non-existent. And he seems pretty cheerful about it. <laughs> for me, this would be de pretty depressing, but he seems to be fine with it. Uh, and it's interesting, too. He, he had, had a brain tumor and passed away. Um, and uh, he didn't seem to, that didn't seem to affect his uh, uh, atheistic theology either. He was still the same way all the way to the end. Um, George Gaylord Simpson, professor of vertebrate paleontology, he writes, man is the result of purposeless and materialistic processes that did not have him in mind. He was not planned. He's a state of matter, a form of life, a sort of animal, and a species on the order of primates, akin nearly or remotely to all of life, and indeed to all that is material. And uh, so purposeless materialistic processes, he's also pretty cheerful about it. He's really cheerful, look at this. Carl Sagan, he's a famous astronomer, he passed away as well. Uh, he writes, the secrets of evolution are time and death, yay. <laughs> Time for slow accumulations of favorable mutations and death to make room for new species. And uh, that's really great, huh? So, but what's interesting about him especially, he says, I personally have been captured by the notion of extraterrestrial life and especially extraterrestrial intelligence from childhood. It swept me up and I've been involved in sending spacecraft to nearby planets to look for life and in radio research for extraterrestrial intelligence. So he, he wants there to be other forms of intelligent life in this universe as long as it's not God. He's fine with finding other you know, highly intelligent beings, just don't call them God. George Wald, Nobel Prize winner in physiology, he writes, time is the hero of the plot. The time with which we have to deal is on the order of two billion years. Uh, given so much time, the impossible becomes possible, the possible probable, and the probable virtually certain. One has only to wait. Time itself performs miracles. So just given enough time, the, even the impossible will become possible. You know? So it's time, not God, that performs miracles. Again, with Dawkins, 
It is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. So, either, I mean, this doesn't seem very promising if you don't believe in evolution. You, you know, you're pretty hopeless. So, let's look at a few of the stupid, ignorant, or insane, and see if everybody is actually stupid, ignorant, and insane that at least questions evolution. This uh, Richard Smalley, winner of 1996 Nobel Prize in Chemistry in the keynote address in Tuskegee University, he, he uh, writes or spoke, Evolution has just been dealt its death blow. After reading Origins of Life by Rana and Ross, with my background in chemistry and physics, it is clear evolution could not have occurred. Now, is he, which is he, ignorant, stupid, or insane? He's a 1996 Nobel Prize winner. Here's Michael Behe. He's a biochemist at, from Lehigh University. He started out believing full-heartedly uh, in Darwinian-style evolution. From the get-go, he has no uh, religious qualms with it. He has no personal uh, vendetta against it. And yet, uh, just looking at the biochemistry as a biochemist, he's confused because he writes, Molecular evolution is not based on scientific authority. There is no publication in scientific literature, in prestigious journals, specialty journals, or books that describe how molecular evolution of any real complex biochemical system either did occur or even might have occurred. There are assertions that such evolution occurred, but absolutely none are supported by pertinent experiments or calculations. There's a lot of what I call just-so just so stories. Given enough time, this is bound to happen. But absolutely none of those are supported by any mathematical or statistical analysis in the scientific literature. It's just a say-so. There's no calculations or predictions about how long on average it should take. Nothing like that as far as statistical analysis. It's just based on given enough time, it's bound to happen. That's it. It's just a story which is quite incredible if you, call, if you think that all these scientists have been taken in by this story that is not supported by statistics or prediction of any kind. Charles Hard Towns, winner of the Nobel Prize in Physics and a UC Berkeley professor, he writes, Intelligent design as one sees it from a scientific point of view seems to be quite real. This is a very special universe. It's remarkable that it came out just this way. If the laws of physics weren't just the way they are, we couldn't be here at all. Some scientists argue that, well, there's an enormous number of universes and each one has, is a little bit different. This one just happened to turn out right. Well, that's a postulate, and it's a pretty fantastic postulate. It assumes there really are an enormous number of universes and that the laws could be different for each one of them. The other possibility is that ours was planned, and that's why it came out so specially. Now, he's a Nobel Prize winner in physics. Is he crazy or insane or stupid? These are um, Sir Frederick Hoyle on the top. He's the guy who came up, in a derogatory manner, came up with the term Big Bang Theory. And this man under, underneath him, he's a famous mathematician, Professor Wick Ramsing. Um, they write, and together in their book, uh, Evolution from Space, no matter how large the environment one considers, life cannot have had a random beginning. From the beginnings of this book, we have emphasized the enormous information content of even the simplest living systems. The information cannot, in our view, be generated by what are often called natural processes, as, for instance, through meteorological and chemical processes. Information was also needed. We have argued that the requisite information came from 
and intelligence. And these are famous uh, scientists, physicists, uh, uh, astronomers, and mathematicians. Uh, Wick Ramsing in particular goes on, it was quite a shock. From my earliest training as a scientist, I was very strongly brainwashed to believe that science cannot be consistent with any kind of deliberate creation. That notion has had to be very painfully shed. I'm quite uncomfortable in the situation, the state of mind I now find myself in, but there's no logical way out of it. So he wants to believe in evolution. He grew up believing it. He was taught it all the way through his education. He has no problems with it philosophically or religiously. And yet, based on his uh, view of science, he is now stuck with a logical conundrum. His science does not support what he's been taught from childhood. So now what's he supposed to do? He says, once we see that the probability of life originating at random is so utterly minuscule as to make it absurd, it becomes sensible to think that the favorable properties of physics on which life depends are in every respect deliberate or created. I now find myself driven to this position by logic. There is no other way in which we can understand the precise ordering of the chemicals of life except to invoke creations on a cosmic scale. We were hoping, as scientists, that there would be a way around our conclusion, but there isn't. So is he just crazy or insane? Why is it such a struggle for most scientists to even consider the idea of God or a godlike intelligence as being clearly responsible for at least some aspects of our universe or biosystem complexity? Why is that such a struggle nowadays? Here's a professor of zoology, Lewontin, uh, Richard Lewontin, from Harvard, I'm um, sorry, yeah, from Harvard. He writes, our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to understanding the real struggle between science and the supernatural. In other words, sci he fully admits that scientific claims are nonsensical at times. Uh, and so he goes on to explain why they still believe these nonsensical claims. He writes, we take the sci side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of the extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. Okay, so they, they present all these stories and they present these stories as absolutely true without the support of science or mathematical analysis or statistics or any of that stuff that you usually associate with true scientific theories because they have a commitment, a philosophical commitment, which you could call a religious uh, dogmatism. He goes on, it is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Sounds like a club or something, like a cult. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow the divine foot in the door. So is this a scientific basis, or is this a religious basis for belief? This next man, uh, his name's Dean Kenyon. He wrote the seminal work on um, spontaneous development of early life forms, the first cellular structures in the prebiotic soup. Uh, he, his book is called Biochemical Predestination, 
and it was the Bible for evolutionary biology for uh, since the mid 1970s. And then he became converted, and this is his a little uh, story from him, a little video clip. that interesting. The reason why he changed his views is because one of his students in his class um, asked him a simple question. He says, if proteins can, and, and all these molecules can self-assemble themselves into these complex structures, according to your uh, book and your theory, what's the point of DNA? And he thought about that for a while. He thought about it for five years, and he finally could not answer that question. And he finally decided that some intelligence had to be responsible for the information content of DNA. And so then he changed his mind on this, and now he's an intelligent design advocate. Everybody see the movie Expelled, or anybody see it? Uh, this is just a little interview with Ben Stein. It's, a, it's an interesting movie. If you haven't seen it, it's worth at least seeing it on the, on the rental. If you look at the, um, at the detail, details of biochemistry and molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. Wait a second. Richard Dawkins thought intelligent design might be a legitimate pursuit? And that designer could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe. <laughs> but you're crazy to say it's God. Heavy, heavy, heavy. Yeah. Yes, you can say it's anything you want, men from outer space, Martians, anything you want, but not God. It cannot be God. Right? not allowed to be God. Right. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? This is Richard Dawkins. So why, from Richard Dawkins' perspective, once you saw that first video clip from Richard Dawkins, why can't it be God? Be, is it because of science? Moral consequences. Moral consequences or because you hate your idea of God? Right? He has a very twisted idea of God. And if you had that idea of God, you wouldn't want God to exist either. Right? If you thought he was a masochistic, murderous... Uh, judgmental, out-to-get-you kind of God, would you want that kind of God to exist? No. So, but you're perfectly fine if some other intelligence exists, as long as it's not God, right? 
Interesting. It's not based on, again, my emphasis here is not based on science. A belief in atheism is based on philosophy, not science. They are so close-minded, and, and, it, and it was, it really, I got the feeling from the movie that it's really not about science. No, it's it is, about them. It's anti-God. They cannot allow God to be a part of anything. Right, because if there is a God, then they might be judged. If there's a God who holds you accountable for your actions, you're in a lot of trouble. Now, I, I, I'm going to be the first to admit, I'm in a lot of trouble, too. But uh, there's a lot of, they cannot admit that there's a possibility of sin or a possibility of morality. And they can't agree on, on this basic thing. If man is just a speck of dust struck by lightning and then turned into a human being, then he has no moral responsibility. If we're all children of God, we have some moral responsibility because we're all, we all have some little piece of God in us. Yet. That scares them to death. But... Huh. Isn't that interesting? You know, it's a, a whole issue of moral responsibility. This is Ben Stein, folks. You know, the whole uh, monotone guy who's in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and he wrote speeches for Nixon and all this. Uh, he had his own show on how, Win Ben Stein's Money and all this. He's a very brilliant scholar in his own right, uh, and he has no real philosophical basis to, to come out on this issue. Um, it's just amazing that somebody like him has actually said such stuff that uh, you would expect from a, a Seventh-day Adventist theologian. Uh, I just think it's fascinating. Oh, my little recording device here has gone on the blink, it seems. All right, let's see if it works. So a question. If at least a few well-respected scientists in just about every major field of science, to include Nobel laureates, have problems with some fundamental aspect of naturalism or Darwinian evolution, are these theories really all that well understood scientifically, or are they more religiously or philosophically based and motivated? I mean, what, do, what would you guys say so far? Religiously motivated or based on science? So let's look at science. What would make something scientific? What is a scientific base, basis for a, a position, even a philosophical position? Is it possible to have a scientific basis for a philosophical position? Let's look briefly about what most people think science is. The scientific method is fairly simple. It's kind of a simple uh, BS detector. First, you just make an observation of some sort uh, in the physical world outside of your own mind. You look at it and you see something happen. You see an observation. Uh, then you use that observation to make a falsifiable prediction as to what will happen in the future. Uh, then you test that prediction to see if it successfully avoids falsification, to see if it actually happens like you predicted it to happen. If the prediction avoids falsification, it actually happens, the hypothesis gains predictive value. In other words, it's more likely to happen again in the future. Okay, so if the prediction fails, the hypothesis must either be modified or discarded completely in favor of a new hypothesis. Because if it fails, obviously it didn't work and it doesn't have very good predictive value. Make sense? Fairly simple, right? It's observation, testing, and modifi modification. That's science. Sir Karl Popper, one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century, he writes, any hypothesis that does not make falsifiable predictions is simply not science. Such a hypothesis may be useful or valuable, but it cannot be said to be science. 
Popper began considering his definition for science because, and the importance for falsification in science after attending a lecture by Einstein. He noticed that Einstein's theories were much different than those like Freud or Marx because Einstein's theories were risky. He could be wrong. Uh, you know, some, some object, he made predictions that you could test, and if the observation ended up going contrary to what Einstein said, then Einstein's theories would be bunk. Uh, there, he, was, he was stepping out on a limb, basically. He could easily cut himself off and uh, be completely uh, shown to be way off base. You know, it was a very risky thing. Whereas Marx or Freud, you have a dream or whatever, and Freud says, well, your mother dropped you as a baby, and then you say, well, I was never actually dropped as a baby. Well, maybe it was your father then that dropped you as a baby. You know, you could just modify your story all day long and, and still be right. And so Marx or Freud's theories are not very risky because they, they have all these post hoc potential modifications to them, whereas Einstein, no, set in stone, this is what's going to happen, and if it deviates any significant degree from that prediction, Einstein's theory is wrong. So Einstein's theory, by nature, is more scientific because it's inherently more falsifiable. Does that make sense? So what is a non-scientific prediction? Are those possible? For example, let's say there's an observation. Dinosaurs and birds share several features, and they do. Okay? The hypothesis, then. Dinosaurs and birds have a common ancestor. That's the hypothesis. The prediction, a link between dinosaurs and birds will be found sharing additional features like a feathered dinosaur, which has been popular in recent uh, days. Is that prediction, or this prediction, uh, is, is that prediction falsifiable? This side of eternity. Let's say you don't find a dinosaur, a feathered dinosaur, or any other additional features. Uh, is that prediction necessarily wrong? It's not wrong. It's just not very, it's only verifiable, but it's not falsifiable. There's no falsifiable aspect to that prediction because this side of eternity, it could still be true. Does that make sense? Okay, so it's only verifiable. There's a difference between a verifiable prediction and a falsifiable prediction. Does that make sense? So it doesn't really meet Popper's criteria for science, that particular prediction. So let's look at some, can you have very mundane scientific hypothesis? Let's say, for example, I go to Las Vegas and I observe that uh, I roll double sixes every time I scratch my nose. Three times in a row so far. Okay? So therefore, I make a hypothesis that somehow scratching my nose causes me to roll double sixes. Is that a valid scientific hypothesis from Popper's definition? It is, right? It is. And so I scratch my nose. I don't have to know how it works. I just have to know that I scratch my nose, I roll double sixes, right? And every time I do it, it gains predictive value. Let's say I do it 100 times in a row. Would you say there might be something to my little theory? Okay, yeah, well, shoot. People, you know, sports, sports guys are especially superstitious in this way. They wear the same socks, haven't washed the jersey all season long. You know, stuff like this. You know, I'm not saying it's necessarily always very scientific, but people... Uh, consider that this could be scientific. It could work, in theory, anyway. But let's say uh, I once uh, don't roll double sixes after I scratch my nose. What happens to my hypothesis? Does it have the same degree of predictive value? No, all of a sudden it drops uh, a notch in predict predictive value. And so now my hypothesis, at least, is not an absolute predictor anymore. And it has to be modified in some sense. Okay, does that make sense? So, what about, is it possible to detect 
God's signature in nature using falsifiable science. If God does exist, he could act in such a way that we could detect him as both deliberate and intelligent. It is at least possible that he could do that if he actually exists. God could be detectable as any other intelligent natural agent is detectable. Like, we can detect uh, humans all the time. There's a whole scientific disciplines like anthropology and forensic science where we are able to detect the deliberate activity of human agents. Is it possible that God is, uh, could act in such a way that we could detect him in a similar manner? Or because some people argue there's no way we can detect God uh, because God can't act in, in a uh, way that we could actually recognize him as a deliberate agent. I was like, so is there God, does that mean that God is more incapable of manipulating nature than I am? I think not, if he actually exists. So the question is, has God acted in a detectable manner? Of course, he could hide himself, right? If he's omnipotent and all-powerful and everything, he could hide himself so that there would be no way for us to detect him. That's possible as well. So the question is, has he actually acted in a way we could detect him? If the basic notions behind naturalism and evolution are true, detecting God as a deliberate or intelligent, uh, or intelligent would be difficult. Because if disinterested, mindless laws of nature can explain everything with overwhelming predictive value, how then can anyone detect intelligent agents of any kind? If nature can explain everything, how can we detect extraterrestrial intelligence? Like uh, we saw earlier that people are, scientists are looking for extraterrestrial intelligence. Even Dawkins is not opposed to that idea. Some mainstream scientists do claim to be able to detect deliberate artifact, artifact means uh, deliberate manipulation, when it comes to human or alien action, like SETI, just don't call the ETI, or extraterrestrial intelligence, God. Here's uh, Seth Sostek. He's from the SETI Institute. He's one of the leading scientists there. He writes, Perhaps the extraterrestrials will preface their message with a string of prime numbers, maybe, or maybe the first 50 terms in the ever-popular Fibonacci series. Well, there's no doubt that such tags would convey intelligence. Right? So if you can find some sort of mathematical tag, like a series of prime numbers, or maybe uh, the first... 50 terms in pi repeated over and over again a few thousand times, that would be clear evidence of intelligent manipulation of a radio signal. So then um, the obvious question comes from Thaxton and Bradley and other guys. They write, why then doesn't the message sequence in DNA and DNA molecule constitute prima facie evidence of an intelligent source? After all, DNA information is jo not just analogous to a message sequence such as the Morse code, it is such a message sequence. So why then is DNA somehow uh, obviously natural, whereas a radio signal with a, with a bunch of prime numbers is obviously designed? Let me give you a, a little quiz. A few years ago, well actually uh, over a decade ago, crop circles started appearing in crops in England. And at first when these geometric crop circles started appearing, no one knew how it was being produced or they were being made. And some scientists actually proposed that some unusual weather pattern made these things. I mean, seriously, some actual intelligent scientist proposed this, that perhaps this is the result of a weather pattern. Would anybody in this room believe that? <laughs> well, of course, it turned out later, I don't know if you can see from out there, but these little trackways, see those little trackways going in? Turned out later, uh, two guys went around England doing this, and they, uh, they had a board. And a, and a string, they each had a board, and they went around and stomped 
out these things and mapped it out with a string from the center so they could make these geometric shapes that were highly symmetrical. And, uh, but you know, before they found these, these guys by hidden cameras, uh, there were other people that thought that maybe these were the result of alien intelligence. In fact, the movie uh, Mel Gibson. Yeah. What about the ones that are bent over and they're not broken? Yeah, well, even if you have it bent over and not broken, if you have a pattern like this, is that a weather pattern? Well, it I'm doesn't. I'm saying it's a weather, pat weather pattern, but there have been like magnetic theories of the Earth. I know. Would you believe this is a result of a magnetic interference? No. You don't know? For, for magnetic infer interference to interact with crops in such a way, I would be highly skeptical. To me, highly symmetrical patterns in crops are not produced by any non-deliberate mechanism that I can think of. Magnetic, weather patterns, those are all equivalent, unintelligent processes that don't interact with crops, the material of crops, in highly symmetrical geometric ways. And only intelligent does this that we know of. No other known non-intelligent force of nature is able to do this. That we know of. And so I think that those people that proposed alien intelligence as being responsible for this were more logical than those scientists that proposed weather patterns or magnetic interferences or fluxes of some sort. How about this? I showed this picture yesterday. All of these rocks, these are all granite rocks, they're all designed. Right? Here's this one. This one's obviously designed. Maybe this one too. Is this one obviously designed? No. This, so intelligence can produce things that are obviously designed, like this and like this. But intelligence can also produce things that are not obviously designed. Intelligence can copy nature. Right? Can nature copy intelligence? Not beyond a certain point. Right? Here's some uh, crystals. This is a salt crystal, snowflake. Here's pyrite crystals. They're also just as highly geometric and uh, symmetrical as the crop circles, right? Perhaps more so. And yet, are these naturally produced? Yes, they are naturally produced, so what's the difference? How do we know these are naturally produced, but we clearly know that the crop circles are not naturally produced? You have to know something about the material in question, how it interacts with non-deliberate forces of nature before you can have any clear idea or, or basis upon which to base a prediction or a hypothesis of intelligent design. You have to have some experience with the material in question. You can't just come up with it without any prior investigation or scientific effort. Does that make sense? These are just amazing snowflakes. That's a kind of a barrel-shaped snowflake. Uh, they're all very symmetrical, but uh, did God chisel one of the, all of these out individually uh, with deliberate design? Or did he just set up the laws of nature in place so that nature could do this? Nature can do, these are the result of natural law. How about this? Would you believe that uh, some hurricane blew all these seeds and the things just grew like that? <laughs> or some magnetic flux just kind of attracted the right seeds and they, is that obviously, what about compared to all this back here? Is this natural versus this? Who would believe that, that, that some force of nature did this? Non-intelligent nature. What about this? Is this natural or deliberate? <coughs> It's what? Natural. Anybody say natural? Raise your hand. Natural. It's deliberate. Planting the natural garden. Right? So again, deliberate processes copying nature. How about this? Deliberate or natural? Would you believe a tornado picked up all these trees and shoved them into the beach like this? 
No, probably not. You don't think so? I couldn't convince you on that one. How about this? Given millions, or given two billions of years, uh, some planet in the universe, this is bound to happen somewhere, right? <laughs> Isn't that the argument? Right? Given enough time, the improbable becomes probable, and blah blah blah. Would you believe that? Happens anywhere in the universe outside of deliberate design. So let's look at this. How to detect design? What about the mechanism of random mutation and natural selection? That's supposed to be a non-deliberate, they're real, non-deliberate natural forces. Uh, are they able to explain the information content of DNA? That's the real question here. Since they are both real forces of nature, they can and have produced novel, functionally beneficial systems. But if you actually look at it in literature, they only work at very low levels of minimum structural requirements or levels of what uh, Behe calls irreducible complexity. Systems with a minimum structural threshold requirement of a few basic building blocks or amino acids are relatively easy to evolve. They're like three-letter words. Look, this is an evolutionary sequence in three-letter words, comparison to the English language system. Can I go from cat to dog by changing one letter at a time with each of the intermediate sequences being meaningful? Easily, right? Cat, hat, bad, bad, dig, dig, dog. Easy, no problem, evolutionary sequence. Why is that so easy? Well, the reason it's so easy is because there's a very high ratio of meaningful versus non-meaningful three-letter words. Okay? What about a few hundred uh, amino acids um, or systems that require at least a few hundred uh, characters or amino acid building blocks? It's much less common. There are examples of evolution in action that produces informational complexity at this level, like lactase, nylonase, abzymes, uh, citrase, those all have evolved in real time, observable time. Uh, starting sometimes with random structures or random sequences, these are able to evolve, but much less commonly. So they're like moving up to seven-letter words. We'll, I'll get into that a bit more a little later on in the next lecture. But the reason for it, it has to do with ratios of potentially beneficial versus non-beneficial in what's called sequence space. And I'll talk about that in more detail in the next lecture. However, when you get up to complexities, functional complexities that require over 1,000 amino acids, there's not a single example in scientific literature. This is an exponential decline in what's called evolutionary potential. The evolutionary mechanism of random mutation and natural selection works, but it only works at the level of like three-letter words and, and maybe a a few hundred uh, letter character sequences or what we call sentences or paragraphs. But as you go higher and higher and higher, the, the mechanism drops off exponentially until, well, yeah, I mean, can nature or a hurricane or whatever stack some stones on top of each other in maybe a, a, a little tiny semicircle? Is that possible? Like three or four rocks maybe get stacked on each other. Would you expect maybe that could happen? Yeah. It's like three-letter words. Nature can go a certain distance and producing a certain degree of similarity. Or, or, or can you imagine nature kind of eroding granite stones that they sort of loosely resemble a cube? Right? That could happen, right? It can go a certain distance. But after what, at what point does a high degree of similarity or, or uh, um, um, symmetry and uh, polished uh, granite cube after what point of that degree of perfection do you say, huh, this is probably not the result of nature anymore? This is probably crossed the line over into obvious realm of intelligent design. 
You know, there's, there's these ranges, but after you get beyond a certain point, after you begot, get beyond a certain level, all of a sudden you say, this is not natural anymore. This is the result of intelligent design. So, what you have here is kind of a gray zone. You have non-deliberate potential in the yellow. This is clearly the result of natural processes, or at least nature could do this. Intelligent design can explain everything all the way through the, the whole bit, because intelligence can copy nature, right? But as you move out, all of a sudden you say, nature is less likely to do this. Uh, it could happen, but not as likely. Then you get out here and you say, uh, almost uncertain. Uh, you know, not, not very believable that nature could do this, but maybe given enough time, nature on rare occasions could possibly do stuff that's out here in this area. But once you get beyond this, this area, all of a sudden you're saying, I don't think nature can do it anymore, regardless of how much time you give it. Let me just show you a couple little uh, video clips of, of some amazing machines that exist in the natural world. This is the flagellum, a bacterial flagellum. You go inside the bacteria, here's the bacterial cell wall, and then it builds the uh, first layer of structure for the little motor to make it swim. This is, it's like a real motor, an O-ring, not an O-ring, but uh, bushings and whatnot. There's this little, um, motor element and then it feeds up through it uh, flagellar proteins. Then it starts making the hydrogen channels. And it they doesn't start spinning until it punctures the outer surface because if it did it would blow apart. And then it's a little cap here that helps to uh, line up these proteins as they come through the center of this thing properly. And this, spin, uh, this cap spins at several hundred times a second. So this is dramatically slowed down so you can see what happens. Then the cap flies off and you have to get a different cap to, for, to uh, properly fold different proteins. And the proteins come up the middle and it folds them properly. Without the cap there, the proteins would just go spitting off into, into the water and wouldn't make the flagellum. So you have to have the cap. And see how it comes up and see the little feet of the cap move to fold them properly. If it doesn't have all its feet there, it doesn't work. And then it, it'll go up higher to real time here in a second. It does this very, very rapidly. It's still not at real time yet. Now it's at real time. This is that, and then it goes, and it can swim. And also this little, uh, this little bacterium can reverse these uh, motors and to turn the opposite direction in a quarter. It spins at 100,000 times a second, the motor does. And in less than a quarter turn, it can reverse itself and spin the opposite direction so that the bacterium can switch directions and head toward a source of food. And so what's the point of having this little motor if you can't tell where the food is? And so it has a, the motor is connected to chemical sensors that help it spin more often when it's going away from food and spin less, opt, less often, like rotate itself less often when it's going toward a source of food. So it can therefore preferentially go toward a source of food. And it, all that interaction, the flagellum itself, just the motor requires about uh, 40 structural proteins that have to all be there at the same time before motility itself will work. And uh, that's not including all the chemical sensors and whatnot that have to be included. So let me see if I have another one. I think that's all I have for that movie. 
So the signature of God. Science allows us to study various materials to determine their natural abilities and therefore allows us to discern unnatural activity or manipulation to the point of recognizing the miraculous, even the very signature of God. As I quoted yesterday, Jesus said, at least believe the evidence of the miracles themselves. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. So, again, is a simple polished granite cube miraculous from a human perspective? Not miraculous from a human perspective, but is it miraculous given the hypothesis of natural production? Yes. It's very miraculous given that hypothesis. Even though humans can make it, uh, it's not miraculous from the human perspective. So what's uh, Jesus talking about when the miracles I do speak for me in my Father's name? Is there certain things that Jesus did that we can't do? Like raise the dead? Is that miraculous from our perspective? Yes. Is it miraculous from God's perspective? No. Raising the dead for God is like us making a cake. You just mix the batter, put in the proper, you know, load up the proper software, and you're good to go. Right? From God's perspective. But from our perspective, it's miraculous. So it, it's a relative term. For, this is one of my favorite pa passages uh, dealing with this topic in the Bible. Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Although they claim to be wise, they became fools. So what does Paul say is evidence of God? Some, some blind form of faith? Why do we believe in God? Based on the things that have been made. His, his eternal power and Godhead is evidenced in nature. In short, true science does not allow one to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Also, religion can be scientific or science-based. There need be no fundamental difference between science and religion. And we'll get more detail into the reason why in the next lecture. Any questions? Oh, and by the way, this is my website. All this, all this information is on that website, and these videos will be on there as well. So. No questions? Okay. Oh, one question back. Yes, the question is what, what evidence is there for the age of the earth or, uh, being young instead of old? And I did cover that a little bit yesterday. Um, a lot of, the most convincing evidence for me uh, is from erosion rates of, of the geologic column. The erosion rates are orders of magnitude too high for the geologic column to still exist on continental shelves and not have already been washed into the oceans. There's also uh, other arguments, of course, dealing with radiometric dating, ice core dating, uh, tree ring dating, carbon-14, and all that stuff, which I haven't got into in this lecture because dating methods by themselves would take six lectures at least. And uh, I discuss all the uh, potential and problems with various dating methods on my website as well. Carbon-14 is actually friendly to the young Earth position because carbon-14 has a half-life of 5,700 years and a maximum range of uh, about 100,000 years at even the theoretical maximum. And what's interesting about carbon-14 is that carbon-14 is being found in fossils that are supposedly millions of years old. And so the question is, how did the carbon-14 get there if it's supposed to be completely gone within 100,000 years? Uh, which is an interesting question. Too. It's being found in coal and oil beyond levels of background radiation that you would expect uh, just by the background sensitivity of the machine itself. 
So that's a very interesting, I think that carbon-14 is the most useful method and it's actually friendly to the young earth position. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. I'm sure you've talked about this on the geologic time scale, but what was your explanation for different things only being found in certain layers? Because as you go up, you find more things, but once you go down deeper, you find very simple life in, like, in the rock record. Yeah, I, I talked about that pretty extensively uh, yesterday on the fossil record, and I can probably go over that individually with you. But in, yeah, it's it's complicated. <laughs> so I, that's a that is a, an issue, and it's still somewhat problematic. But I think there's some good at least approaches to that question. Okay, thank you all for coming. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC generation of youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.